have experienced culture shock. I came across a story online uh, this past week, and apparently a family moved to the United States at the end of October one year. And at the end of their first day in their new apartment, uh, they were confused, and their children even were scared. There were these people who were wandering the streets in droves with masks, and they were going around and they were banging on doors, sometimes even their door. And that was a weird way for them to find out about Halloween. I once heard about uh, another person who experienced culture shock, going somewhere and just being completely unfamiliar with how things were done. Uh, A missionary friend of mine, he went overseas to his new church, and he had big plans, big hopes for how things were going to go in his new church. And so he organized a meeting. And already at his first meeting, he was getting very frustrated uh, because some people showed up, but they showed up late. And even after they showed up late, then they just slowly meandered around and they, they wouldn't even sit down. They just started talking with everyone who was there. And it was uh, almost an hour until when the meeting was supposed to have been started. And so next time he, he laid down the law. Next time everyone get here on time and save the chatting and the questions to the end. Uh, that makes sense, right? But that was a big mistake. The people in the church, they were badly offended. They felt like he was priority, prioritizing punctuality over people. And so he had to walk back the, that decision pretty quickly. He, he wasn't used to the different culture. Speaking to another friend who recently moved across the world, he says that the biggest culture shock actually comes when you least expect it, not with big things where there's clearly a custom that you don't understand, but it's just the little things. Just as you walk around throughout your day and you're starting to feel at home, but you just notice little things that just remind you over and over again, I'm not at home here. I don't belong here. This isn't where I was from. Maybe someone doesn't understand your accent or you see a sign that you've never uh, seen before or something like that, and you just remember, this isn't really my home. Well, in our passage, the Israelites are faced with a question. How do we live in this place far from home? How do we live in this place that we don't really belong? And they're faced with this question that should resonate with all of us. How can we, as God's people, live in a foreign, even a a godless land? That's the question of our text. And today we'll see God's answer. We'll see how to live in exile. And we'll explore this text in two parts. First, we'll see the call to settle down. And then secondly, we'll see the call to look ahead. The first, settle down. We need to realize the context of this passage. We need to realize that there is centuries of background information. For hundreds of years before our text, God's people had been in trouble. The kingdom of God's people had split in two. It was fractured. There were people who were worshipping all kinds of false gods. For over a hundred years before our text, the Lord had been uh, sending uh, warnings and threats against the northern kingdom that had fractured off. He warned the people that if they did not repent, he would use the nations around them to discipline them. And eventually, he did. The Assyrians, the brutal enemies of God's people, came in and they exiled the northern kingdom. And then a few decades later, God rose up the prophet Jeremiah, and he called them to warn the southern kingdom, Judah, you're next if you do not repent. 
God warned them, I will do this again. If you won't turn back to me, I will take you out of the land that I gave to you. And for 40 years, Jeremiah repeated that message as nobody listened. For 40 years, they refused to listen. And eventually, surprisingly to them somehow, but unsurprisingly to everyone else, God followed through again. That's the context of this passage. We meet Israel here. We meet the tribe of Judah at the lowest point of their history. They're suffering as a nation, as suffering as terribly as they ever had. And worst of all, they know that this suffering is all their fault. Or at least they should know that. Babylon had come in and conquered Judah. Then Judah had resisted and rebelled, looking everywhere for help except for to their God. As a result, Babylon did what they typically did with unruly people who keep on rebelling. They came in and started a series of deportations. They started taking people out of the land of Judah, starting with the people who were most important, those who were most influential. Uh, people like uh, politicians, the best and the brightest people, the, the scholars, the people uh, with skilled trades. The idea of taking the best and the brightest from the rebellious nation is that in this way, Babylon could crush them. If they could assimilate the best and the brightest and get them to live just like Babylonians, well then, there'd be no problem. The distinctive character, the distinctive qualities and values and religion of those people would be gone. Because all the leaders, well, they had been transformed into good Babylonians. Their beliefs and their cultural identity would be gone. During this time, at the beginning of the exile, false prophets rose up. And they, they claimed to talk on behalf of God. You see that alluded to in verses 8 and 9 of our text. And these false prophets said to the Israelites, do not settle down. Do not assimilate. Do not even unpack your bags over in Babylon. They said, the Lord will not let us stay here. No way. They said, two years max, and the Lord will bring us back. The false prophets called them to resist, because the only other option seemed to be settle down and assimilate. And God's people would be gone forever. But in our text, God sends a letter to his people. And in his letter, he tells them to do neither. Not to assimilate, but not to stay back and hope for a quick return to their land. Instead, he tells them how to remain, how to live in exile. We read that starting in verse 5. We read God's shocking words for his people. He tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. Do you see God's response to his people? What he's telling them to do. On the one hand, he's telling them something shocking. Something that would have been deeply offensive to God's people, the Jews. He's telling them, don't resist. Settle down, because you're going to be here for a while. Make houses in Babylon among the Babylonians. Plant gardens. Get married and have kids and then raise up your kids and then they will get married and have grandkids for you. 
What he's saying is settle down. But yet you can also see he's saying don't assimilate. He says settle down and make sure that your uh, children get married and that uh, their children get married. But yet he says increase and do not decrease. So he's saying live in Babylon, but still live as my people, distinctive people in Babylon. Settle down, but don't assimilate. And so imagine for a moment being these Israelites, God's people. Finally, you have been exiled. Your homeland destroyed, carried off, away from all that you know and all that you love. And here are God's uh, instructions to you. To build houses among your enemies. Plant gardens, because you're going to be there for a while. This would have shocked the Israelites. Uh, They're told they're going to live there, not just for a little while, but in verse 10, uh, Jeremiah says to them, or God says through Jeremiah, you'll be there for 70 years. Think about that for a second. How many of us here expect to be around in 70 years? Not a lot of us, right? Probably not. God is essentially saying that this is your new city, probably for the rest of your lives. But yet, he can still says throughout the text that this is not your home forever. He says, live there and work there and have families there, yet say distinct. And even more offensive is what God says next. He tells his people to settle down among the Babylonians, their, their fierce enemies. These godless people worshipped all sorts of others' gods and even raided the temple. They mocked Israel's God. But God tells them to settle down among them. And even more than that, does God say in this text, does he say just to tolerate these people? Does he say just put up with them, live between them, but don't really interact with them? That's not what he seems to say. Instead, he doesn't say ignore them or tolerate them. In verse 7, God says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. The word welfare there in the text, it might be a familiar Hebrew word uh, to some of you. It's the word shalom. It means peace. It means prosperity or, or flourishing. So God is telling his people to go and seek the peace, the welfare, the, the flourishing of their bitter enemies. Those who just destroyed their homelands, their, their families, ripped them away and brought them there. God tells them to seek their welfare. That means to desire their welfare, but it also means to work hard to try and accomplish that. God's calling them to work for the sake, not just of themselves, but of their neighbors, the Babylonians, so that they might see them flourish. Next, even more shockingly, God says to pray for the welfare of the Babylonians. These two words, seeking and praying, they would have been familiar to Israelites. This is what they did. They sought and prayed for the welfare of Jerusalem back home. Now they're called to seek and pray for the welfare of their conquerors, of Babylon. They're supposed to call out to God and pray on behalf of the city, bringing it before God in prayer and asking him to bless it. This is how God wants his people to live in exile. This is how he wants them to live as God's people in a godless land. He wants them, remember, not compromising, 
not assimilating, not decreasing. Yet at the same time, in a, in a bizarre way, the opposite of what we would ever expect, not separating, not resisting, not even just tolerating, but desiring and working hard and praying for the welfare of these people that do not know their God. In Babylon's welfare, uh, God tells them, they will find their own welfare. Perhaps some of you know uh, that this isn't a very popular text. Maybe if you've heard of it, you'd know that uh, it was kind of popularized by Tim Keller's old church in New York City. And that's because they saw a very real connection between New York City, where they were located, and Babylon in this text. New York City, they, they would explain, is a, it's a huge city. It's a multicultural city. And in many ways, it's a godless city. More than that, they felt it was a god who wanted Christians to assimilate. They wanted Christians to come and start thinking like they thought, start valuing what they valued, or else just stop talking, or else just leave. And so looking at this text and many New Testament connections, they said, we will settle down, but we will never compromise. We will never assimilate. We will settle here and we'll flourish here, and we'll go out and we'll seek the welfare of New York City. We'll seek the welfare of the city God has planted us in, and we'll do it for God and for his glory and for the good of his church, Christ's church. And studying this text, I came across an article that was very critical of this view. Uh, the author lamented the problem of the church today and said that the problem of the church is the one that we're more familiar with. We are way too settled in this world, aren't we? That's typically what we focus on. Now, this article, they, they claim that we need sermon series on sojourning. And I think that's true. We need to be reminded more and more that this is not our home and not to settle too deeply here. So this article argued this is not the message that God's people need. But I ask... What do you think? Is it possible that we really need both messages? The church in the New Testament is connected with Israel in the Old Testament, as many of you well know. But God's people today in the New Testament are especially connected to God's people in exile. In James 1 and 1 Peter 1, Christians themselves are addressed as exiles. Peter, when he writes uh, that epistle... He says that he's living in Babylon, even though he was almost certainly living in Rome at the time. If you read the book of Revelation, this world living in sin and rebellion against God is often referred to as Babylon as well. We need the reminder, of course, not to hold too tightly to this world and put down roots here, not to think of it as our final home, absolutely, not to assimilate or be assimilated by the world. And some of the Israelites in Babylon needed that message too. Perhaps you remember from our sermon series on Haggai a while back that after the 70 years, the Lord did bring his people home. But some of the Israelites had put down roots too deep and they refused to leave. They didn't want to go. They liked their life in Babylon. And as God's people, that's a very real risk for any of us, isn't it? That the culture might assimilate us. They might turn us away from God, teach us their values, teach us the world's lies. But yet, I and many other people uh, with me are convicted when they read this text. Because here they read God's instructions to the Old Testament community of how to live in exile. 
And as God's people in the New Testament as well, we're called to live in the world, but not be of the world. And there's a real risk, I think, that we highlight often, that we can fail and we can become of the world. We can begin to value what they value and think like they think and act like the world around us acts. But there's another risk too. And that's the risk that in our effort to not be of the world, that we hardly live in the world at all. Don't you think that's true? We can fall into the same line of thinking as the Israelites, where the best thing to do is not settle down, not get involved with the city where God has put us in, to stay separate and just hope that God comes to get us soon and brings us away unscathed. But the Israelites were called to settle down and get involved, to work hard for the good of their neighbors, their enemies, and to pray for their welfare as well and trust that God would preserve them. That if he was calling them to increase, even though they're settling down in Babylon, that they could trust him, that they, wouldn't, they would increase and not decrease. That they could trust him to help bless them in his call for them. This, of course, was a, for a specific time in Israel's history. But in the New Testament, we're told so clearly how God wants us to live as exiles. For example, we read in Matthew 5, Jesus' instructions to us all. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, do do not even the Gentiles do that? Likewise, Jesus calls us, the church, to be salt in the world, to be light in the world, to be a city on the hill. Jesus tells us not to hide our light under a bushel. And in fact, he just notes the absurdity. If you have light, if we have the light of the world in Christ, why would we ever want to cover it up? Why would we ever want to hide it? Likewise, we read in 1 Peter 2, we're called to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And it's fair to ask, of course, if we are living good lives among non-Christians. But it's also fair to ask, are we living among non-Christians at all? Because that's the assumption that the New Testament seems to make. Brothers and sisters of Sardis, we are exiles in Chilliwack. I think we can ask, are we seeking the welfare of the city, the welfare of God's people, the church is bound up with it? I know of several Christians who have been motivated by this very text to live a more outward-facing life. They've been motivated to go and meet their neighbors, maybe invite them over, show hospitality. They've been motivated to go work in soup kitchens or get involved in the community or maybe even to run and get involved in politics. And that's because they came to realize that God has planted us, of course, in his church, in Sardis. And it's wonderful to work and be a blessing in the church. But God has also planted us in our city, And they long to become a blessing to the city that God has planted them in. And it's very hard when we withdraw, even unintentionally. And there's something beautiful about this. When we do this, if we do live like this, being in Babylon, so to speak, but not assimilated to Babylon, if we do seek the welfare of people, pray for people, love people, but don't get conformed by people, then people will be amazed and compelled. 
They'll wonder, why do you care so much for the city, and why do you care so much for the poor, and why do you want to get involved in these things? And they'll be blessed, and they'll be attractive. Think, first of all, just how amazed Babylon would have been. Think about how different the Israelites would have been from any other exiles who came into the city. What kind of exiles are these who come into the city and they they don't assimilate, but they don't rebel either. They don't withdraw, they they get involved, but yet they're absolutely committed to their God and to serving him unwaveringly. We can see this if you're familiar with the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People were compelled. They they wouldn't eat food that was against their laws. They they wouldn't stop praying. They worshiped their God with all their heart, and yet they, they loved the people and cared for them and respected them and devoted their lives to Babylon. When we live like this, moving in and settling down and yet refusing to conform, it's compelling. And I want to tell you why. It's because when we live in that way, we start to look a lot like Jesus Christ, don't we? Jesus Christ is the one who came, in a sense, into exile. He came from heaven above into hostile territory. And when Jesus Christ came down, he certainly did not assimilate, did he? He knew no sin. He was perfect. And yet Jesus Christ didn't withdraw. He came right to the the lowest people in society. He he was friends. He was known as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He drew near. What kind of savior is this? He came, and sinners and tax collectors, they were amazed, and they flocked to him because they were compelled by him, this sinless man who loved sinful people and drew near. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize it wasn't just the world that were Christ's enemies. We were Christ's enemies. By nature, we were enslaved by the devil. And yet Jesus Christ came down sort of as an exile. And he considered your welfare and my welfare his own welfare. He laid down his life for our sake to bring us peace, to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. He was exiled, separated from God, that we might be brought home to God finally, after having lost our privileged place in the Garden of Eden. So what a command for God's people here about how to live in exile. First of all, settling down. But that brings us to our second and our final point. They're also called to look ahead. And this is really the highlight, the most beautiful part of this text. This is what should blow us away. Remember that in the context of this passage, we're exiles in a sense, right? But why are we exiles? Simply because of our stage in redemptive history. Jesus has come and he sent us out into the world to make disciples. But why were the Israelites in exile? Do you remember? Decades, centuries of rebelling against their God. Hearing time after time warnings to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from wickedness and violence, and they refused. The Israelites were exiles because they had sinned relentlessly, turning their back on their God for decades. God was punishing his people in this text. And yet, as soon as he does, at the very beginning of their exile, he sends them this letter. Remember, the Jews are at the lowest point in their history. And some of them must have been wondering, has God finally rejected us? 
This time was it too much? Will his grace not come this far? Has he forgotten or abandoned us? Finally, after our long history of sinning, is he done with us? Has he cut us off for good? After their years of sin, of course, that's absolutely what they deserve, to be cut off from God for good. And so imagine, those faithful believers, imagine their heart when they read this letter. And notice even just how it's addressed, just how God begins this letter in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts of heaven's armies, the God of Israel. Can you imagine the comfort? He is still their God. After all their time rebelling, all their time messing up, he identifies himself as the God of Israel. He calls them to settle down, to increase in number, and to pray. The implication, of course, being he's still with them. He's going to bless them, even in Babylon. He's Lord over Babylon, too. He's going to keep them safe. He's going to listen to their prayers. And he calls them to look ahead to what he yet has in store for them because he still has a future for his sinful people. I love what John Calvin says on this passage. He, he comments on the book of Jeremiah, and you can read the, the chapters leading up to this point, how vivid God's descriptions of the coming judgment are. And John Calvin explains that's because of how hard-hearted sinful people like us can be. The Israelites were so hard-hearted that they kept on going in sin. They, they sinned to God's face, even though God warned them. When God said that he was coming at them with an armed hand and with a drawn sword, they laughed at him. That's how hard-hearted the sinful people are. And yet, John Calvin explains, now that they had been driven into exile, God knows that they are still hard-hearted, and they're still slow to believe. They were slow to believe about judgment, but they'll also be slow to believe about God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. And so now God, just as he sent strong threats, he now sends his people strong promises, amazing and beautiful promises of his faithfulness and forgiveness. One commentator notes, after these 28 chapters, primarily warning judgment, the next four chapters of Jeremiah, starting here, are filled with, this commentator says, some of the most wonderful promises in all of Scripture. Promises to these sinful, rebellious, punished people, such as that God will love these people with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31. That he would turn their mourning into joy. That he would make a new, better covenant for them. That he would cleanse them from all of their guilt and remember their sins no more. That he would be their God and they would be his people. And Jeremiah summarized these blessings in one wonderful promise in our text. The Israelites were suffering during this time of exile and they would suffer for a long time as a direct result of their own sin. And yet to comfort them, God gives them one of the most well-known and most comforting and most quoted texts in all the Bible. Some commentators suggest it's quoted second only to John 3, 16, the most often. God says to these languishing people, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Some other translations put it, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. 
I want you to think for a second, has anyone ever uh, really done something that surprised and hurt you or really offended you? And then afterwards, they wanted your thoughts. And you just were like, honestly, I don't really know what to think. I don't really know what to say. Well, the amazing truth here is that after years of rebellion, just starting a 70-year punishment, God isn't confused. He's perfectly clear. He knows the thoughts that he had thought before and the thoughts that he is currently thinking towards his people. And what are these thoughts for these sinful people? Are the thoughts serves them right? Let them sit in it for a while. Let them suffer after rebelling me so long. About time. No, those aren't God's thoughts for his sinful people. He knows the thoughts he's thinking towards his people. And their thoughts of peace. Their thoughts of welfare. Not of evil. Never of evil. Even in his discipline, it's not of evil. Thoughts of hope. He's thinking thoughts of their future. He's not confused. His mind is absolutely made up. His purposes for them are 100% sure. He calls them to settle down, but to look ahead because there's a lot of good coming. He has plans for their welfare and peace and hope in a future, even through this. And brothers and sisters, what are those plans that God had fixed in his mind for these people to comfort them? The plans are the coming of Jesus Christ. Eventually, the Israelites would go back to the land, but it would never be the same. The kingdom of Israel would never flourish as uh, it had or be as free as it once had been. But through that nation, which God did preserve in exile and then brought home and preserved for hundreds more years, through that nation, Jesus Christ would come as our king. Finally then, all of God's people, all of these sinners who repented and turned to him, would have welfare. They would have peace that surpasses understanding. Peace to bask in and peace also to share with others. And God knew his plans. And God knew that this peace for the sinful, rebellious people, people a lot like us, that it would come at the cost of Christ's lack of peace. Christ's suffering. But God knew his plans for how he could give sinful people hope and a future Not just in exile, but ultimately forever with him at home. And it was by sending his son to ransom them from their slavery to sin. And we can see God's ultimate purposes in verses 12 to 14 of our text. God doesn't want his sinful people to remain far away. He wants to bring them back. And that's what he's going to do through this exile. He says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you. That's the purpose that God is working towards, and that is what he will accomplish. And ultimately, John Calvin again notes, this is a call for every one of us still today. And it's a call that rings out to the ends of the world. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and you know what? You will find him. You'll find him through his son, Jesus Christ, and there you will find grace and peace. Thoughts of your welfare, of hope, and of future. Life spent in eternity with God once again. And that is the great call of this text for how we can live in exile. Seeking God and finding him, and then living the rest of our lives serving him 
and trusting him in our exile until he brings us home. The words of Paul I find helpful here. Because Paul, of course, as you're familiar with his letters in the New Testament, he felt that the body he was living in was just a worn-out tent. He didn't feel at home in this world at all. But yet he knew he had work left to do as God's servant in exile. And so in spite of great suffering, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, in spite of great suffering being in prison, I will continue to rejoice. For I know what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. And so we're called to settle down and work here in our houses, in our families, uh, in our jobs, in our city. Staying in the world and praying for the world, but never being conformed to the world. And as we settle down here for a time, we look ahead. Because we know we're not staying here. God didn't do all this work to leave us behind, to leave us languishing in sin. He did it to set us free and bring us back to him where he wants us to be. But as we look around, we see all sorts of big things and some little things. Sins all around us and sins even inside of us that remind us, I don't belong here long term and I I don't want to stay here. Instead, we look ahead to when Christ comes back or calls us home. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. And a popular preacher who is commenting on this text will finish with his brief story. He told a story of a young man who was a, a very good friend of his. And while he was on this earth, the, this friend of his, he, he worked very hard for the good of his family, the good of God's people, and for the glory of the Lord. Yet one day, this friend went into the hospital with severe abdominal pain. And he was told he had days, maybe hours to live. This pastor got the call, he got into his car, and he rushed over. And the whole way over, he racked his mind, trying to think of what to possibly say to this man. He went in weeping over this man. But by God's grace, he left rejoicing with that man. Even feeling jealous of that man. Because the Lord had blessed him with peace and with confidence. While he was on this earth, that friend was happy to work hard in exile serving the Lord. But when he got that diagnosis, man was he excited to go home. He wanted to go and be with Jesus Christ, and he let everybody know it. And so his friends and his family and this pastor, they left wanting to go home and be with Jesus too, though willing to serve him here a little bit longer. This man could be so confident and so sure, so excited to go and be with Jesus once again. Because he knew the plans God had for him. Plans for welfare, not for evil. Plans to give him hope and a future. Amen.